Commercial Real Estate, where America lives, works, plays, and shops. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, the source for insightful analysis and entertaining discussions. I'm Michael Bull, your host. Thanks for joining us. This past Friday, Ryan Severino, senior economist with Reese, joined me on stage at Cobb Galleria in Atlanta. We discussed opportunities and useful takeaways related to commercial real estate. Ryan shares an update and forecast on all the major sectors and some very interesting insight on how interest rate increases might impact cap rates and value of commercial real estate. Enjoy. Let's start with the office market. I mean, I think the office market impacts you know, a lot of people, even if your, your clients are, are just using office space in their business, uh, it's important to, to know what's going on in the office market. So how is the, the sector performing right now as far as occupancy and, and rates and things going? You know, uh, the office market is still struggling to recover a little bit. Uh, this is, you know, obviously it's the worst recession in the United States since the 1930s and recovering from that, it's a different type of recovery than we see in, in your typical post-war recession. And so uh, I think the thing that really hit the office market the hardest was that uh, we lost 8.7 million jobs, a lot of which were office using employment. And so what we're seeing in the market right now is as the labor market uh, has been recovering, we finally gained back all of the jobs that were lost during the downturn, we've slowly seen demand coming back to the market. So vacancies today nationally are at about 16.8%, which is, which is quite elevated relative to you know, more normalized levels of of uh, a vacancy, and I think it's really a reflection of what's been going on in the labor market, in the sense that the labor market's recovering, uh, but not at the pace that we would that we would ideally like to see, or not what we typically see in your you know your fairly uh, typical post-war recovery period. What about the trend there on occupancy? So, uh, just to put it into some context, uh, during the recession, or I should say, in the periods after the recession, vacancy peaked at about 17.6% nationally in the first quarter of 2011. So we're only down about 80 basis points over the last three years, and you don't need to be a mathematician to know that's, that's not even 10 basis points per quarter. So very tepid pace of improvement. Um, so at 16.8%, we are still uh, at least a few hundred basis points above the threshold where it translates into more meaningful rent growth as vacancy starts to compress. So I would say you know, still very high relative to where we've been cyclically, and we're still significantly above what I would consider to be a healthy market environment. A lot of tenants today should be looking at locking in long-term leases if they can. I mean, you've probably heard that for the last couple of years, but I think now even our clients can see that are leasing space that they're going to have some hefty increases, and if they can lock in some long-term leases, it may be a good time to do that. And and Ryan, what are some of the other factors that are affecting the office market? Uh, you know, one thing we hear from our clients and, and see in the papers, uh, efficiency, that the uh, space, the square footage per employee is really shrinking, that we're all getting closer together at work, we're all going to get sick at the same time now, right? They're all going to be so close together. Uh, what are some of the, is that really impacting the market? Boy, I could editorialize about that for hours. <laughs> um, it, Here's what's really going on. They're, they're definitely, across the country, this is true, there has been this push on the part of tenants to move to sort of an open plan office format, if you will, where uh, you know, it, it sort of shuns the, the, the more historical model of enclosed offices and somewhat dedicated cubicles in favor of these 
um, open spaces like this where you just have long rows of people sitting uh, at these rows in chairs that, you know, if they're lucky, they're arm's length apart maybe. Uh, and, and that was really the bastion of the technology sector in places like Northern California for the longest time. And then what happened is landlords started to sell this to their tenants as, oh, you can save a lot of money on this and you'll reduce your footprint and it, it'll increase the productivity of your workers and then they'll all you know, share ideas and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and it'll be like Shangri-La and everybody will be happy and we'll all be wonderful. And the reality of it is not really that true. Number one, um, it's not really shrinking the footprint as dramatically as I think the popular media has portrayed it out to be. Because what happens is the individual worker spaces are in fact shrinking. I mean, it doesn't take, again, a mathematician to figure out if you once had a dedicated office or cubicle and now you're sitting at you know, a really long row sharing it with, with five, six, seven, eight other people, that your individual workspace has shrunk. But what's happening is they're reallocating that space away from the individual workers toward the more common areas. And so, and they have these really euphemistic names like the, the brainstorming room and the breakout room and the quiet room. Because, you know, of course you can't get anything done at your desk, so you have to go somewhere else in order to get work done. Or they have these really she-she coffee bars. I don't know if you've, you've seen them, but they're really high-end. I mean, it's almost like going to, uh, it feels like the lobby of a Four Seasons in some of these places. And so, uh, so what's happening is we're not seeing that dramatic of a, of a of a net reduction in the size of the leases because it's simply a reallocation. The other thing that's going on with these spaces, which uh, is interesting, is that the sort of productivity gain that I think everyone was sort of buying into is not really materializing because, and there have been some psychologists who've done some hardcore research on this, it shows that workers actually feel very uncomfortable in these environments and they are significantly less productive than they were when they had a dedicated workspace. And so that's not really materializing the way I think that employers thought it would. And then lastly, and this is somewhat anecdotal, but um, you know, they sell them on the idea that the space is cheaper it's roughly about 10 to 15% more expensive to build out this space because uh, some of the fixtures are more high-end and if you use any of the noise-dampening technology, that obviously costs money in, in a way that you're not spending money in a traditional office. So what I would say is as this becomes more prevalent, the square footage per worker is decreasing a bit, but it's not this massive implosion the way that the, more, the media portrays it out to be. So I would say more than anything, a lack of demand is really holding the market back. The fact that we've been creating jobs uh, over the last few years in the economy, but a lot of those jobs are not office using employment. They're not coming from the office using industries of the economy. What we did uh, is, is we effectively lost a lot of medium wage jobs that did, enough of which utilized office space. And we've, and I say this without any sort of bend whatsoever, but we're replacing them with a lot of lower value add, uh, you know, low productivity type jobs that just don't utilize office space. And so the good news is, uh, on a quarter-to-quarter -quarter basis, we are seeing more of the jobs being created coming from the office using industries of the economy, um, just not enough that it's really moving the needle, needle on demand just yet. Yeah, I think that's an important concept for our clients when they're looking at uh, the efficiency of their space. I mean, uh, I, I interviewed the head of GSA uh, for the U.S. government uh, a few weeks ago on the show, and, the, and one of their large offices in D.C., they have two employees per desk. So you can imagine that. You've got a locker and you put your, your wife's picture out there and then you take it when you leave. Or I guess you could leave it for the next guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, one of, uh, 
you know, I, I've done a lot of anecdotal research on this with our clients around the country. And one of the best things I heard someone say is that uh, they loved working in a workspace that was so small that they had to keep their personal effects in a locker as if it were high school. And I right. thought, well, that's a kind of a profound statement when you think about it. So, yeah. um, but and you brought up the point about um, about everyone's health. I think the other thing is if you talk to some of the people who are you know, green advocates of these, you know, sort of open plan formats. They'll tell you, well, the HVAC systems are better and the circulation of the air works uh, more efficiently. But uh, some of the doctors that I've talked to about this as well, you know, it's not as if there are invisible hands coming down snatching germs, you know, when someone sneeze, sneezes or coughs. And you're right, you're in relatively close proximity. And I think the other thing that's a little bit problematic is in some of these open plan formats, there aren't dedicated workspaces. It's almost first come, first serve. And so if you can get the desk by the window and you rush to come in a little bit early, it's like, oh, you can you know, look at the trees out the window if you get a chance to do that. But I guarantee you that those workspaces are not being wiped down every evening, you know, because that obviously adds to the cost of maintaining these spaces. And so uh, I think everyone knows one of the first things that they advise people not to do during cold and flu season is, you know, don't share telephones, don't share offices, you know, you know make sure that if you do, you wipe down the equipment. And so uh, that's a, another way to really kill productivity is if you start to have uh, illness being transferred a little bit more rapidly than it does with enclosed spaces, uh, that's a surefire productivity killer. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and then also, I think, as an office user, you want to think about recruiting and retention and having good talent at your company. Another issue I think some of our, our user and our clients should think about is the effect on their office location for parking and for other reasons. Uh, we've had some clients looking at buildings and we're like, look, we think that 25% of the tenants are gonna double the amount of people per, uh, per square footage here. So this building has some parking issues. So I think, and you're talking about signing long leases here, so I think you want to look ahead and, and see what you think is going to happen in, in per building situation. Now, what about some opportunities in the office market? Economics and commercial real estate is very cyclical. And so as, and we expect the economy to, to continue to recover over the next few years. More and more sectors of the economy, more and more industries that utilize office using employment are going to start to bounce back. And so you will go from uh, a point in time where the, the recovery in the office market is, is very concentrated in a relatively small number of cities, maybe six, eight, ten, uh, depending upon how you define recovery, to many more over the next four to five years. And I think that's where, you know, in parts of the country like Georgia, where we haven't seen that kind of robust uh, labor market growth translate into a lot of demand for space, where I think you will start to see more of that over the next four to five years. So I think there will be readily more opportunities. More from Ryan Severino in just a moment. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, today we're featuring intel from a CPA real estate conference featuring Ryan Severino. Next, we talk about retail and retail real estate. Enjoy. Retail uh, centers, especially out in the, in the suburban markets outside of, uh, of the smart numbers, uh, ring of death that, that we heard about <laughs> Where's the current market for, for retail around the U.S. as far as uh, occupancy and, and performance? So, uh, and in Atlanta. Uh, you know, I, I, I still am a fan of retail, but from an economics point of view, it's, 
I mean, it's still kind of a mess. Uh, and I know you've heard me say this before, but uh, one of my favorite expressions about the retail sector in the United States is that it's, uh, it's overbuilt and under-demolished, and that we have way too many new centers uh, that were constructed in the decade leading up to the downturn that should have never been constructed. And then we have too many old centers. that They're just languishing. They're slowly going dark and losing tenants. And then they ultimately become a magnet for small property crime. And they really need to be raised and converted into something else. Uh, I think if you look at neighborhood and community centers nationally, vacancy is about 10.4%, which is very elevated relative to where it, where it usually is, which is sort of mid-single digits. Uh, in fact, during this uh, recession and the third quarter of 2011, we tied the all-time high uh, of 11.1%. And we've been tracking the market since, uh, since I was in kindergarten, so clearly that's a long time uh, to be paying attention to real estate. Uh, I think in the mall sector, it's the same kind of story. Uh, it's a little bit better. Vacancy rates today are at about 7.9%, which is down uh, about 1.5% from where they peaked also in the third quarter of 2011. But what's really going on is, with retail is a reflection of what's going on in the economy is that it's a, it's a bit of a tale of haves and have-nots in the sense that uh, the centers that cater to very high-end affluent households are doing incredibly well. Vacancy rates for Class A malls that, you know, they have anchors like Saks and Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus and inline tenants like Polo and Armani and Versace and Tiffany and Gucci and retailers like that. Uh, their vacancy rates are basically back to where they were in the first quarter of 2008 uh, at the advent of the recession. Uh, the rest of the market is, and, and, and the one thing I would say is the very defensive centers, the thing that, that, centers that sell non-discretionary items, so grocery-anchored centers and uh, pharmacy-anchored centers are holding up uh, a bit better because they're, those are just, you know, they're, really, they're truly non-discretionary. Um, in between that, uh, you know, there, there really still is a dearth of demand out there, and it's a reflection of the consumer in the sense that, uh, a lot, again, a lot of the jobs being created are not the highest value-add jobs, and so there's not a lot of upward pressure uh, on wages because of that. So wage growth in the U.S. averaging about uh, 2% right now, even with inflation being relatively benign, doesn't translate into a lot of extra income to go out and be a discretionary spender. And so, uh, and I would say the situation is in, in Atlanta is reflective of that. If you look at some of the better properties out there, you know, the higher end ones, in, you know, in Buckhead and places like that, vacancy rates are a lot, uh, a lot lower than they are with, you know, more middling type centers around, uh, around the metro. And I think this is, this is a fairly universal phenomenon across the country uh, because it's really a reflection of, um, it's a reflection of the underlying economy. The households that are, they're not immune to the vagaries of the economy, but the ones that are a little more insulated have spending power and they can go uh, and, you know, on the weekends and be a little bit frivolous with their money. And the households that, that cannot, I mean, they're just waiting for the economy to improve enough that, um, you know, they start to, you know, they see more of the economic gains accruing to them. And, and unfortunately, a lot of households just aren't seeing that right now. Well, let's talk about the effect of online sales, which is a question from, from the crowd here on, on the, the text. So how are online sales affecting the brick-and-mortar real estate of, of retail today? Here's what's in, it, really interesting about online sales. If you look at online sales as a percentage of overall retail, it's only about 6%. And then even if you back out uh, goods and services that aren't typically purchased, online, autos, gasoline, things like that. You're, you're still only looking about 8 to 10%. Uh, so the majority of spending still occurs in bricks and mortar stores. What's scary about this, though, is that that percentage is only likely to grow over time. Most retail economists don't think that that percentage of overall retail sales will probably plateau for another 10 or 15 years until it gets to maybe 25 to 30% of overall sales. And what that is going to do is that is a, going to exacerbate this rift between sort of the winners and losers, the haves and have-nots. And so uh, if you're a high-end center, I don't think, if, if you're a high-end center, you don't have to worry about that as much because 
honestly, higher-end consumers like going into shopping centers and being catered to and doted upon. And honestly, nobody shops online to save 10 cents on a $4,000 T-shirt anyway. And so it's just not the kind of, uh, it's not the kind of offering that, that, uh, that they usually are interested in. But that said, we are starting to become more internet-friendly consumers. Um, you know, through the internet, through apps on smartphones. If you look at uh, the number of, of unique households that shop online, it's greater than it was 10 or 12 years ago. If you look at the, the array of goods and services that are, are, are on offer online, that's significantly greater than it was 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, there are goods and services that can only really be purchased online that didn't even exist five years ago. And so uh, it is going to sort of exacerbate that rift between the haves and have-nots. And I think what, what, I'm, what I worry about a little bit is if you're a retailer that doesn't have some kind of moat around their business, if you, if you don't have dedicated brand loyalty, like a Nike does or an Apple does or a Banana Republic does, if you're just the purveyor of other people's wares, those businesses are becoming more and more commoditized. We saw it happen with books. We saw it happen with videos. We saw it happen with music. We've seen it happen with electronics. And, and that is going to persist as we go on into the future. I mean, this is Pandora's box, and we're not closing it again. And so uh, what it does is it poses challenges to all retailers to find ways to incentivize consumers to actually come into the bricks and mortar stores. And I, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, you know, uh, in-store only incentives and, and you know, having you know, really uh, adaptive technology within the stores that you know, syncs with consumer smartphones and things like that. But most of the concepts that have really uh, supported the retail market over the last few years have been a lot more mundane and they're kind of losing steam a little bit. Um, you know, the restaurant ideas in malls is kind of running out of steam. The food court idea is running out of steam a little bit. Um, the sort of non-traditional use of spaces is running out of steam a little bit. And I think in the short term, I'm not hearing a lot of really interesting or exciting ideas in how to incentivize people to come into stores aside from just offering in-store incentives. And I think that's going to make it challenging for a lot of those sort of mid-tier mid retail centers over the next few years held back by the weakness that we've seen in the labor market over the last few years. But here's the good news, right? Aside from the fact that we still do most of the spending in bricks and mortar stores, if you look at the long-term trajectory of spending in the United States based on, on long-term fundamentals, you know, things like demography incomes, not just, you know, sort of the very short-term bubblicious phenomenon that cropped up before uh, the market imploded where everybody was using their house as a glorified ATM to go shopping, which was clearly not tenable. If you look at the long-term spending in the United States, and, uh, even on an inflation-adjusted basis, and you compare that to where we are today, uh, we're still missing, depending upon how you estimate this, you know, maybe six, seven hundred billion dollars that's not being spent by consumers. That's a lot of money that's not filtering through the economy. I mean, you're almost talking about a trillion dollars of economic activity that's not occurring. And so uh, the good news is that I'm a very big believer that human behavior is difficult to change over time. So I don't buy into this whole, uh, oh, the American consumer has all of a sudden found religion about the profligate spending because of the downturn, and now they're just going to live very austere lifestyles for the, you know, you know, for the rest of their lives. I don't buy that for one second. There is this phenomenon in economics called the marginal propensity to consume, which basically means the more money you have, the more money you spend. The labor market is not always going to be this weak. I mean, we have already seen strengthening in the market. Uh, not just the sort of somewhat artificial unemployment rate, but in terms of the absolute numbers of jobs and the caliber of jobs being created. Eventually, that is going to translate into not just more people having money in their pockets to go spending, because obviously if one has a job, that enables them to spend in a way that they can't when they don't have a job, but it's also going to start to cause wage growth to tick up a little bit. And I think you will see some of that 
six to seven hundred billion dollars that's not being spent start to come back and be spent in stores. And it is going to start to unleash a lot of demand that hasn't existed for the last few years. More from Ryan Severino in just a moment. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's FIUonline.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, today we're featuring highlights from a CPA real estate conference featuring Ryan Severino. Next, Ryan talks about how rising interest rates might impact cap rates and real estate values. Enjoy. And I'm glad you, you brought up cap rates because that's a question I think a lot of, of, of audience and listeners have is, you know, what do you expect cap rates to do? I mean, in some of these properties, uh, high-end properties, even Atlanta, we're seeing some really low cap rates in, in all sectors, multifamily, of course, but in office and retail. And in some of these, these cap rates are coming down to 7, 6, 5, even 4%. And if interest rates rise, you know, what's going to happen to the to revision? When, we, when they sell these assets down the road, where are cap rates going to be? And I guess interest rates aren't, aren't the only factor involved, right? Right. So here's, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a myth that I love to disabuse. The, the idea that the only factor uh, that puts any pressure on cap rates is interest rates. Clearly, interest rates are an important factor, but not the only factor. Not to sound like everyone's uh, real estate finance 101 professor, but there are three main things that really drive cap rates. There's the opportunity cost of capital, of which interest rates are, are a component. There's the income growth and their risk premiums. And if you think about how those things behave in economic environments, there's, there tends to be a little bit of a tug of war, right? So think about the environment that we're in right now. The economy's starting to recover. Uh, everybody's feeling real, you know, somewhat more optimistic. I don't think we're ready to start shaking the pom-poms just yet, but we're feeling a bit more optimistic. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing investors sell out of the more risk-averse asset classes like treasuries, especially long-dated treasuries, and into riskier asset classes like equities and, and commodities and, and commercial real estate. And so it's, it's, like, it's basic finance math. You put downward pressure on prices when you sell and upward pressure on yields. So at the long end of the curve, interest rates are rising. At the short end, the Fed's holding the line a little bit right now because they, they're, they're trying to make sure the economy can stand on its own two feet. But eventually, the Fed has clearly signaled that they're going to start raising short-term rates. So I think we can all agree that over the medium term, at least, interest rates are going to be higher uh, over the next, say, three to five years than they are today. So, and I think that generally reflects a recovering economic environment. But from commercial real estate's point of view, what happens during a recovering economic environment, and we've already been discussing this a little bit, is that fundamentals start to improve because they're pro-cyclical with the economy. So vacancy rates start to come down, rents start to go up, NOI starts to grow again. And so NOI growth puts downward pressure on cap rates and upward pressure on valuation because anybody rational is going to pay more for a building with a growing income stream than one that has a flat or declining income stream. The other thing that occurs during better economic environments is that the risk premium starts to compress because, again, everybody feels better about their prospects and they're, they're willing to take a flyer on, on assets like commercial real estate in a way that they wouldn't during more uh, challenging economic times. And so that also puts downward pressure on cap rates. And so uh, if, you, if you do a detailed, you know, if, if you're kind of a geek like me and you build a model and you, you, know, you run the numbers and you look at it and you see, hey, these things are actually pulling cap rates down more than interest rates are, are pushing them upward. What's dangerous about this, though, and you're sort of intimating about what happens down the road, the reverse is true. When the economy starts 
to sputter, the Fed lowers interest rates because they're trying to stimulate the economy, and everybody sells out of risky asset classes because they get panicked, and they all pile into risk-averse asset classes like treasuries, and so then the reverse is true, and so uh, then asset values go up for these risk-averse asset classes, interest rates go down, and that puts downward pressure on cap rates. But think about NOI, what happens to NOI in worse economic environments. It starts, the growth rate starts to slow down, if not turn out right negative, and risk premiums can really expand during poor economic times. And so that puts upward pressure on, on cap rates. And, and you see that in the data, right? 2008 and 2009, what happened? As Soon as we hit the skids, people sold out of asset classes that they, they were paranoid about, and cap rates expanded in a fairly dramatic fashion. But since we've been recovering, we've seen them come down. And so I think in the short to medium term, say sort of the next one to three years, I'm not so concerned about rising cap rates. I think what, where it starts to become an issue is sort of medium to long term. Three to five years out, I worry about the economy uh, the recovery getting a little bit long in the tooth, and, and um, what happens is your typical post-war recession recovery period is uh, expansion period is five to seven years, and so we're already five years into recovery at this point, right, mid 2009 to where we are today. And so the longer on this recovery goes, and every subsequent year, the greater the probability that we get into another recession. Usually, the Fed doesn't exactly get the timing right with interest rates around recessionary periods. Honestly, your typical post-war recession is usually triggered by the Fed overshooting a little bit, and that's where I worry a little bit. That's where we could see cap rates rising. You know, three to five years out is a little bit opaque, but you know, you mentioned you know five, six cap rates. There are some markets around the country where deals are going off you know two, three, four cap rates. I find it very hard to believe that investors can buy a cap rates this low today if their exit is five to ten years down the road, because the implied NOI growth in order to make that deal work, I mean, we might as well be underwriting in fantasy land, because it's just, it's just not possible. It's not really a realistic outcome. So but, if I, but if their exit's three years or 30 years? Yeah, you re, I almost feel like you have to be really short end <laughs> or really long end. The kind of investors that I see buying at a lot of low cap rates either have really short-term hold periods because they think they're going to ride the wave of cap rate compression downward a little bit further, or just someone who looks at it as a bond-like alternative where they say, okay, we're just going to clip coupons for the next 20 or 30 years. We're not so worried about uh, you know, what happens to cap rates in the short term because we're relatively confident in the long term that the value of this asset will be greater than the price point at which we purchased it today. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We have some fabulous shows coming up for you, including separate shows on multifamily, industrial, retail, and office. We'll include market updates and forecasts. We also have a show coming up on commercial real estate apps. Be sure not to miss a show of special interest to you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're featuring a best-of show from a CPA real estate conference this past Friday. The show features Ryan Severino, senior economist with Reese. Next, I asked Ryan about his outlook on the industrial market and where he sees opportunities. Enjoy. Well, let, let's change our uh, discussions to the in industrial market. 
Um, uh, that market has really uh, done well, hasn't it? Absolutely. What's, what, where are we? Where, where's the performance today? So uh, for warehouse distribution, you know, sort of the, the, the big centers where we store and move goods, uh, vacancy rates are at about 11.5% nationally, which is uh, it's down a bit from where they were, down uh, a couple percent from where they were during the recession. And I think um, because e-commerce continues to grow, uh, we, and, and consumers have been spending a little bit more money. I don't mean as, as if to make it sound like they're not spending, but it's still a far cry from where we were. Uh, we have seen demand starting to come back. But here's what's fascinating about warehouse distribution these days, is that uh, a lot of the demand and a lot of the construction activity is really being driven by e-commerce, and not just the e-commerce-only tenants like Amazon. Even the Walmarts of the world, which is maybe the most mundane retailer out there, uh, is investing billions and billions and billions of dollars on their e-commerce strategy, which includes these very large distribution centers. Because the idea now is not just uh, that they have to distribute to a relatively small number of retail centers, but now they have to distribute to a relatively large number of disparate households, and they've promised them that they're going to deliver these goods in whatever it is, 24 hours, 48 hours. And so they need big centers to store all of these goods, and they, and they need... Um, the centers to also handle the increased volume of truck traffic. So they have more dock doors, they have a bigger truck court with a larger turning radius, and they have big 60-foot clear heights now because they're stacking the goods higher vertically. And that's really changing the industrial sector in a way that we haven't seen before. I mean, even, and it's happening, you know, the most pronounced in, in you know, major population centers, but we're even seeing them go, uh, the, the, the users of this space are going a little bit further afield. They're going away from traditional sub-markets. But I would say most of the benefits up to this point in the recovery have accrued to, you know, major, either the major port markets or the major hub distribution markets. So, you're looking at you know, Los Angeles, Long Beach, Riverside, San Bernardino, the ports up, uh, you know, sort of Port Elizabeth, New York, uh, and then the distribution markets, the Chicago's, Dallas's, Atlanta's of the world that have, have really benefited the most uh, from this sort of big box dynamic over the last few years. I was talking to Larry Callahan with Patillo, who's here, and he was uh, telling me that the Savannah uh, uh, deepening of that port is, is funded, that it's really going to happen. So how's that going to impact Atlanta and Georgia and the industrial market and retail market or, uh, around the southeast? You know, what, what's really interesting about that is that everybody's known that the widening of the canal has been going on for a while, but not everybody's really gotten their, their ducks in a row in order to capitalize on that. And so uh, I think it's an easy thing to understand, right? You have to dredge the channels deep enough in order for... The nomenclature changes all the time, but you know the the mega post Panamax ships or whatever they're calling them these days, the, you know the, the big ships that can will able to be able to get through the canal once they they finish that project. Um, I, I think that could be a benefit because there are so many examples of uh, organizations shipping goods from obviously the world's workshop is still in Asia, shipping them from Asia to the, the west coast, and oftentimes you know they're moored. You know, hundreds of, you know, maybe hundreds of miles is an exaggeration, but miles offshore waiting for the big boys like the Walmarts or the Targets of the world to unload their goods. And then they're basically just sitting idle out there waiting for them to get out of port and then they have to come in. So it gives anyone an opportunity who doesn't have to wait for the biggest players to unload to actually go through the canal and then come around to the East Coast. And so I think if they can really get the dredging done uh, and, they have, and they build the port facilities in order to accommodate that, then there will be increased demand because I think there are a lot of users of, of uh, the big ships that just get frustrated you know, waiting you know, somewhere in the Pacific Ocean uh, to get into port. And so uh, I know Miami's done a really good job of getting up to speed. Uh, I know Port Elizabeth has done 
has done all the dredging up near New York. Uh, unfortunately, they have to raise uh, the Bayonne Bridge uh, 100 or 200 feet, whatever it is, and that's not a cheap project. And so that's one of their impediments. And so, you know, if Savannah can, can really get the dredging done and build the facilities, you know, they could be in a position to really capitalize on this going forward. Where are some opportunities in the industrial market? You know what's interesting about industrial, and we've, we've only really seen this um, in the data over the last couple of quarters, but a recovery up to this point, which was very concentrated in those port and distribution markets, is now starting to slowly spread a little bit to smaller markets. And so this is the very, very early innings of this phenomenon, so I don't want to overstate it, but uh, we have seen that in our data over the last couple of quarters, that uh, any smaller market that has access to distribution infrastructure, whether you're talking about um, you know, good access to interstates or good access to rail or good access to even air, uh, they have been able to capitalize on this. So it's not just the big boys that have been really dominating the market. Lately, we've seen some of the smaller players. And so what I would say is, you know, don't just shun, you know, don't just think, oh, uh, warehouse distribution is dominated by Atlanta and shun some of the smaller markets. Some smaller markets can be really poised to capitalize on this. It's going to be very uh, market and submarket specific, but the ones that have, have good access to that kind of distribution infrastructure, uh, we've seen in our data, uh, they have been uh, showing better signs over the, over the last couple of quarters. The sell leaseback uh, is an opportunity for a takeaway for some of our clients that are looking to grow and they want to expand their businesses and they own their real estate. You know, that market is so hot. If they've got good credit and they sign a long-term triple net lease, uh, they can really get some really low cap rates, some really low, low money and control the asset for a very long time. If you have an event coming up, the Commercial Real Estate Show may be available to help facilitate speakers and be a media partner, providing lots of other benefits for your event. Just reach out to us. All our contact information is available at commercialrealestateshow.com. We'll stay with us. We'll have more from Ryan Severino. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by RealCrowd. RealCrowd lets you invest directly into shares of cash-flowing real estate with low investment minimums and the ease of investing online. Visit realcrowd.com slash radio. That's realcrowd.com slash radio. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. More from Ryan Severino. Enjoy. Let's move on to multifamily. What do you what do you see in the multifamily market? What's the performance level now? What do you expect moving forward? So uh, I think everybody knows the multifamily sector has been the undisputed champion of commercial real estate over the last four years. Uh, it, it was really the per perfect storm, if you will, in the sense that you know, the construction pipeline really got shut off along with the credit spigot and everybody's fears about the economy. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, we had demographics being very, very favorable. Uh, Gen Y is a very big generation, second only to the baby boomers. Uh, and we have just millions of 20 to 30-year-olds. And it's still a relatively young generation. In fact, the single most common age in the United States right now is 22 years of age. The second most common is 23 years of age. And the third most common is 21 years of age. So the big sort of bump in the demography in Gen Y is still relatively young. And so there's a lot of demand for apartments out there. The problem is, and I think we all know this, sooner or later, developers can't help themselves, right? Sooner or later, the fundament, it's like kids with impulse control. Sooner or later, that the fundamentals are so attractive that they have to start building. And so with vacancy rates at about 4% nationally and rent growth being the most robust of the major property types over the last few years, we have definitely seen the development pipeline ramping up 
pretty much across major markets around the country. You know, whether you're talking about Atlanta or even New York or San Francisco or Washington, we have definitely seen robust pipelines. In fact, we track new construction. We track it on a daily basis, but we update our, our pipeline product on a weekly basis. Every week, we are seeing more and more construction products in the pipeline. And so it's not so much the demand side, in, especially in a market like Atlanta, where you, know, you still have growth. It, it's, not, it's not like New York, which is an older market, or even some of the Midwest markets, which are seeing deterioration at this point. There's still growth to be had there. The real question is, are we developing a little too much? And I would say, you know, I'm not expecting this total implosion in the markets, but you know, be cautious about supply. What I'm telling people is, now let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. There are still good deals to be had, but this is one, it's almost becoming like retail in the sense where I think understanding the property at the micro level is becoming of paramount importance because it's not just the vacant parcels of land where you really have to worry about projects possibly being built. It's anybody who thinks that something could be knocked down or reconvert, you know, condos to apartments, or I can knock down an old office building or something, and I can, I can develop an apartment building. More and more, we're seeing that in the data, and I think that's where the caution is. So it's more of a supply-side phenomenon. What about opportunities in multifamily? I mean, you suggested that, obviously, we're not building B and C new product. You know, we're building A product. Uh, are B and C properties uh, investing in multifamily an opportunity? Yeah, I honestly think uh, more and more when I talk to investors, they are more and more interested in B and C properties because Class A properties, I don't care what market you're talking about, secondary, tertiary, Class A properties have been kind of fully priced out, if not overly priced out up to this point. Uh, and spec development isn't as attractive anymore, not only because the development cap rates aren't as high as they once were, but now there is this sort of influx of competition through development in the marketplace. And so uh, I would say BC does offer, is it further out the risk-return spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. I think that goes without saying. But I think relative to paying you know, a 2, 3, 4 cap or trying to build to a 5 or 6 cap, I think I could make a compelling argument that on a risk-adjusted basis, that might be a better play. Because again, you do have a lot of young people who will probably struggle to afford Class A rents in, in you know, markets, uh, you know, some of the southern markets without real strong supply constraints, again, like Atlanta, Austin, places like that, um, who will be gaining jobs as the labor market continues to recover. And so I think that could be attractive play. It's just, again, it's difficult to be a contrarian. And so I'm starting to hear more investors are at least, they're testing the waters, they're dipping their toes in. I haven't seen a lot of them jumping in with both feet just yet because I think they're still concerned about, you know, there still might be you know, sharks in the waters. But I think, you know, for anyone who is willing to be a little bit more aggressive and, and you know, take uh, a you know, little bit of a riskier play, I think there could be some pretty decent opportunities there. Thank you, Ryan, and thanks to the good folks at the Georgia Society of CPAs. For more from Reese, visit Reese.com. That's spelled R-E-I-S. Next week, we'll share insightful information related to costs surrounding commercial leases. Thanks for joining us today. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by RealCrowd, crowdfunding for institutional quality real estate. Visit realcrowd.com slash radio. Florida International University. Earn your commercial real estate master's degree in as little as 10 months. Visit FIUonline.com. And Bull Realty Commercial Brokers, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. And France Media Publications and Conferences. For exposure to the world of commercial real estate, visit francemediainc.com.